Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Of Poetry Podcast with Chloe Martinez. Chloe Martinez is a poet and a scholar of South Asian religions. She's the author of the collection 10,000 Selves from the Word Works 2021 and the chapbook Corner Shrine from Backbone Press. Her poems have appeared or are forthcoming in Agni, Plowshares, Prairie Schooner, Shenandoah, and elsewhere. She works at Claremont McKenna College. You can find more of Chloe's work at www.chloeavmartinez.com. Hi, Chloe, and welcome. Hi, Anne. So good to be here. Thanks for joining me. Would you like to start us off with a poem? Sure. I will. Um, I'm going to read Mandala of the Pile of Papers on the Dining Room Table. Star of pain in your neck, turn it side to side. It glows in the dark all the same. Your poster of the golden temple keeps falling down over your desk and the latest baby announcement watches you severely from the top of the pile. Send the gift already, says the baby. So new it hasn't yet learned how to smile. What is the proper order? How to master your materials and the annual reminder, protect yourself from the flu and a catalog full of things you hate and also want. You try to imagine spending thousands on the Lombok bed. You stare at its hand-carved filigree, imported perhaps from its namesake island in Indonesia, site of a recent earthquake, death toll, 20, made in China more likely. The enormous headboard resembles a flower mandala, but I kid you not, painted white. And no illusory demons wait here for the boho chic sleeper to encounter in dreams or visions. There will be no battle against the senses. No progress from the simple periphery to the inner circle, which contains in some traditions the most fearsome opponents. Some dangerously beautiful, others just plain dangerous. The catalog bedroom is light-filled, tidy. A single houseplant hangs from an exposed beam and a small green bottle of San Pellegrino rests by the bedside. A room you float into, unencumbered by karma, by want, by messy piles of paper. Mandala, a universe map. At its center, enlightenment, which is to say freedom from causing harm. Move through it by touch, by starlight. Demons may appear. Persevere. Don't look them in the eye. Thank you. So one of the great privileges of having the poet right in front of me um, is that the line when when the speaker is talking about the bed, the enormous headboard resembles a flower mandala, but I kid you not, painted white. And I wanted to know more about that line. Can you share anything about it with us? Sure. So this is one of a bunch of poems in this book that have these titles, Mandala of the X. And when I was writing this manuscript, I was sort of thinking about the idea of the mandala, which is a concept found in a bunch of different South Asian religious traditions, right? And sometimes it's a, an aid for meditation. It can be, we have Tibetan Buddhist mandala images, which you might meditatively walk through. They're 
elaborate texts talking about what that experience of the meditative trip through the mandala might be. The mandala can also be like uh, a microcosm. So you're traversing the universe when you're, when you're crossing through that mandala. So I was thinking about all these ideas from South Asian religious traditions, which I study, which I teach about, and thinking about the ways they sort of might be at work in my poems, which are sometimes about spiritual progress, progress in the world, how to get through the day, this idea of um, how do we cross through these different spaces we inhabit and how do we, how do we transform ourselves or transform over the world around us in ways that we're always maybe trying to do, right? How do we get to the next thing or how do we, how do we become better, better at something or better more broadly? Um, so this is one of those poems and uh, this might've been the first one that I wrote of this series. And it was inspired by, you know, looking at, at the pile of mail and the, the catalogs that show up at my house mm -hmm. for stuff that I don't buy. I don't know where they come from. And this was, you know, it, I'm literally describing it in, in the poem. This was an image of, it was probably like, I don't know, like Pottery Barn or Anthropology or one of these like fancy furniture like kind of but hipster bohemian furniture brands, right? Where what they're selling is often an idea of the exotic, an idea of decor that comes from a faraway exotic place. And like, what does that mean to have that in your house? Does it mean you're well-traveled and worldly? Does it mean you're spiritual and you do yoga? Um, I'm really interested in the ways that all of that is kind of embedded in advertising and, and the stuff we buy. And that I also like, I, you know, I do find that, that object beautiful, of course. Mm. Um, but I kept looking at it in the catalog and thinking about the ways in which it's coming out of certain cultural contexts, but it's stripped from, the context is stripped away, right? The, the name, the Lombok bed doesn't have any meaning for most people reading the catalog. And I had to look it up. I'm not a scholar of Indonesia. And I just wondered um, how could I begin to recapture a little bit of the context out of which this thing, you know, maybe was drawn or maybe the context that's just sort of lifted and attached to an object to sell it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the poem is a little bit about dealing with the chaos of life, always for me a little bit the chaos of parenthood, um, but also thinking about the ways in which the spiritual and, you know, especially I would say Asian cultures become sort of randomly attached to stuff that we buy and take into our lives sometimes thoughtlessly. Is the, is the fact that it was painted white, are, are mandalas often colorful or many colored or? I think by painted white, I meant Yes, this bed was literally painted white. Um, and I found that sort of ironic or perfect oh. because of course that mm -hmm. catalog is also like being marketed mm -hmm. mainly to wealthy, mm. wealthy white mm -hmm. people or, you know, to an America that is not necessarily interested in investigating like, what does this name of the bed mean? Where does it come from? What might've happened there? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I was using the the literal whiteness of the bed to talk about the kind of whitewashing of culture. Yes. Yeah. The whitewashing was the, the word that was coming to my mind. Um, yes. <laughs> I think that's like, I, I find, well, I just, I love this poem. Um, I mean, I love the, 
gaze of the speaker looking down on this very familiar, like domestic uh, pile that, you know, many of us look at, right, and have to sort through. And um, I always feel like I'm unburying my counter um, and trying to find the surface. Like, I would just love to see the surface. Um, yeah, it's just, in, and that the speaker is able to bring this pattern and this way of looking um, I find it like really beautiful to see this, this kind of meditation that's happening. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because I, I really think my first encounter, and I love that you say it, mandala, and I feel like I'm learning something really deep just by learning how to say it correctly. Um, because I always heard it said mandala. And I genuinely think my first encounter was through tattoos because I remember being on Pinterest and um, the mandala tattoos kind of took over as being this very in. And you always want to kind of avoid those tattoos because tattoos last a lot longer than their their fads or their trends. And so, <laughs> and you, you know, you knew, you just know there's something appropriate happening when there's this design that's suddenly on all of these white bodies. Um, and particularly, I think it's a fairly like feminized tattoo as well, or, you know, it's that easy engagement with new ageism or, or whatever is happening there. And you, you talk so beautifully about that um, in relationship to the catalog experience, which many of us have had looking, um, you know, at, at culture when it's turned into commodity. Um, so thank you for that. You also have this beautiful epigraph um, on the mandala, which is from a Sanskrit English dictionary from 1899. Um, and I mean, I find the, the entry beautiful, you know, where it talks about a circular round a disc, especially of the sun or the moon, like how deep the imagery goes with this um, and how, you know, I mean, the circle is such an important um, an old symbol, right, for, for divinity and all kinds of things. Um, but then at the end, too, when it has the mandala kavi and the M, what does the M stand for after that? Because I know there's like the noun after mandala, and then the M is for. Oh, it's a mus masculine, it's okay. a masculine noun. Yeah. Okay. And then the definition is a poet for the crowd bad poet and I was like oh I want to hear is Chloe talk about this <laughs> yeah well you know so I was writing these poems and thinking about mandalas uh, and then when I was sort of putting the book together one of the earliest arrangements of this book was very mandala focused I had an idea for a while that okay if a mandala is a sort of a meditative circle I'm gonna make each of the sections of the book like mandalas and I'm gonna you know, change the size of the sections so that they will actually become smaller as you're entering the center of the circle. I had all kinds oh, of really wow. complicated notions of this, which I feel now that they were more for me than for a reader, right? They were not, they became such a complex uh, architecture that they they weren't necessarily accessible to anybody but me and the inside of my weird brain. Um, and so I've, I eventually jettisoned that, but the idea of the mandala as this sort of thread going through the book remained important. And then when I was thinking about an epigraph, I love epigraphs, even though I know that 
I feel like there's a trend nowadays that people say, you're not supposed to have too many epigraphs or, you know, cut all the epigraphs out of your book. It's some kind of a weakness. I love epigraphs. I mm -hmm. think they show, they're like giving you a little, a little window into what the poet's thinking about. They're also like little love notes that we're leaving for the stuff that inspires us. So yes, um, I had a long list of possible epigraphs, uh, mm -hmm. but this one, I, these two, I kept as the most important. And so this Munir Williams Sanskrit English Dictionary, this is like the sort of, it's from 1899, but it still remains like, if you study Sanskrit, this is the dictionary you'll use. It's this enormous thing. I, my copy is over here on the bookshelf and I wanna say it weighs like 20 pounds and you could mm -hmm. really injure someone with it. In fact, there is a story of Munir Williams, the you know British colonial maker of the dictionary, uh, being killed by a stack of books falling on his head. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. Um, but one of the things that's great about this dictionary and about the language of Sanskrit is that it's a language that's full of multiple definitions. And so as you can see, this is just like a very typical example of a Sanskrit definition. This isn't even the whole thing. I mean, I just, wow. you know, I took the parts that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but the actual definition in Monier Williams is like half a page long. I thought this was important because of course it starts with this like essential thing about mandalas, which is mandala just means a circle. It can be lots of kinds of circles, right? And all these, the modern new age meanings that we attach to mandala are similar to the modern meanings that we attach to a lot of like yoga terms or South Asian mm. terms that get imported over here. You know, every time I go to a yoga class and hear a teacher say namaste means the divine in me salutes the divine in you or something I get really tense and I can't do the yoga anyway um it really takes me out because these are like you know mm. modern additions to these terms which have a whole range of uses in South Asian mm. contexts um so I was interested in all these uses of the mandala as just different kinds of circles and globe orb ring circumference ball wheel the path or orbit of a heavenly body. I love the ways that even though I was thinking about kind of specific meditative traditions attached to specific kinds of mandalas, um, and definitely these modern images of mandalas that we see in tattoos and all kinds of, mm -hmm. of home decor nowadays, because they are just very attractive, they're beautiful. Um, I liked the way this definition brought me back to this sort of essential idea of the circle as a powerful shape in itself mm -hmm. and the ways that the mandala poems for me, of course, are not, they're not like following some strict traditional meditative practice. They are thinking about moving on a path that maybe is less linear and more circular, mm -hmm. kind of circling toward a center of knowledge rather than trying to go on a direct journey to get somewhere. That was something I was getting at and was helpful to me to have it here in this definition. And then when I found this little usage, you know, deep in the definition of Mandala Kavi, a poet for the crowd, a bad poet, I just really loved that. I thought it was funny. Um, and I thought it was also sort of encompasses like my own insecurities, putting a book out into the world. Like what is it, what does it mean to, on the one hand, be a poet, someone who, does this kind of like rarefied thing that a lot of people think is like inaccessible, right? But also to to really like, why do we write poems? Because we do want to talk to people. We do want to be understood. We want to communicate. Um, 
and I, I felt that that Mandala Kavi, a poet for the crowd, which is really like saying a popular poet, right, or an accessible poet, mm-hmm. I, I loved that and I wanted to sort of claim it. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. Um, that's, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think it just, your book really opened up for me the exactly what you were saying in terms of the non-linear thinking and the circularity. And also, I mean, I think the kind of the meditation on pattern um, and the circling back, it was just, I think it was really beautiful because like I said, since my experience with the mandala was like this thing that literally you would have inscribed on your body and it was so physical to have it lifted into more of a spiritual or meditative um, because there's something about getting a tattoo on your body or buying a bed with a mandala carved in the headboard that there's something about it that says like you can own it, you can possess it. Um, and so I think that it just, it really comes out beautifully in your book as um, something for the speaker. That's how they view their life and are, it's like an organizing principle too, or at least it's opening up kind of windows and doors into other ways of thinking. Um, and I just, I thought that was so beautifully done. Um, and it's also interesting. I, the bad poet, I took that to be a misbehaving poet, not a, um, a not, you know, not a not good poet, but you know what I'm saying that, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you can read that different ways. Um, I think it's all of those, right. It mm -hmm. is the misbehaving poet. And it is also the poet who somebody says they're not a good poet or Mm. they're just like a popular, a popular non-serious poet. I, I embrace all of those Mm -hmm. being bad is what we get to do as poets in whatever way you want to construe it. Yeah. um, I was talking with a friend the other day and they were telling me how um, they're a woman poet and they were telling me how that one of their friends was also poet and was pregnant and a man creative writer said to their, as long as you don't write motherhood poems. And then, and then another man said the exact same thing to my friend when she became pregnant. And I just, I couldn't believe my jaw dropped. I just couldn't believe that men are actually out here telling women not to write. Like, as long as you don't write mother poems, I'll have motherhood poems. It's like, what business is that of yours? Like, um, what, like, well, first of all, this is a tangent, but like, what is a man suddenly going to be more interested in a woman's poetry if she's writing about topics that he's writing about, or if she's writing about I don't know, birds or history or something that, I don't know. It's just, it's that gendered reading just makes me. (laughs) Totally same. And I think that's like wrapped up in my use of bad poet too, is that Mm. one of the things I did in this book is I did write a lot of motherhood poems and I did resist that for a long time because even though maybe nobody said it to me explicitly, Mm -hmm. I did sense that like, that wasn't going to be good poetry, right? These things that I was experiencing that were, all about motherhood and this weird extreme embodied you know beautiful crazed experience of of having babies was somehow like not worthy of poetry and I I absolutely resisted it and it wasn't really even until a lot of the poems in this book came out of the time right after I had my second daughter um, when I finally was just like you know what this is what I'm doing I'm gonna write about this I, I I own it and claim it but 
I did resist it for a long time. And I, I must've gotten that message, like just through the culture. I, I didn't get it directly ever from a poet, although I was in a PhD program when I got pregnant with my first daughter and I had a professor tell not me, but my husband who uh, said that we were, I, I can't remember if he said that we were like, if this happened when he said we were pregnant or um, that we were thinking about it. You know, he had somebody, uh, a, a faculty member said to my husband, every child you have is a book you don't write. And maybe Whoa. you can put that off for later. Yeah. So that was the academic perspective was like, Whoa. not merely is it unworthy of talking about, it's something that you shouldn't be doing until you've accomplished everything else. Right. And wow. So definitely like, I think we're always moving through a world in which motherhood and childbearing and uh, that whole side of life, which is really central and revelatory for me, doesn't have to be for everybody, but it has been for me, you know, was something that I felt like couldn't, couldn't really talk about. Oh my goodness. That quote is just, that is absolutely what I like. Can't even imagine saying that to someone. It's so transactional it's um such a false equivalency and you think academics are going to be more sensitive to um these kind of fallacies i can't it's incredible okay so i want to read you this quote that since we just talked about epigraphs too um this has been an i think it's going to be a ghost epigraph it's one that i've thought about for a really long time and i've almost used on two different manuscripts and i think i'm not going to use it but i love it so much. And it's um, Bernadette Mayer from Midwinter's Day. And she says, it's funny, but whenever I write things like that down, I never fail to think this is not the work of a poet to write details of memory and desire. This view of things is nothing. You are forgetting where you are. And I love it. I mean, <laughs> and like I said, I, I don't think I'm going to end up so using it, but um yeah, about, you know, permissibility and, and what we're allowed to write about. And wow, I just can't, that whole child and book thing is just, it's going to bug me for a while. <laughs> <Crazy>. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 Sorry not to, at all. To it's give that to, to what, you to ponder. Good to know what some people are years. thinking. Yeah. yeah. I love that though. This is not the work of a poet. That's mm-hmm. such a clear statement of the ways in which we are constantly aware of what an is and isn't permissible, right? Even though we're not saying it aloud, it's there in yeah. our work. Yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, in a, I mean, I think Bernadette Mayer is a great person to bring into this conversation because when I think about um, women and femme and queer poets who let, you know, let their life filter through their, um, their writing and their work, because that's always going to be a risk if you are not the dominant narrative. Like it will always be a risk. And I think that that's, um, you know, claiming that and feeling safe enough to claim that. Um, And obviously, you know, I think about trans writing and I think about writing that's, you know, requires a huge amount of vulnerability along with risk. And yeah, it's just, on my mind a lot. Um, and it's, I mean, it's still, I think there's just such a lot of pressure in terms of what you write about. And, um, there's a pressure in terms of what attention, what are, what are the attention of contemporary readers like 
what are they ready for? Um, what are you going to be rewarded for? What are you not? Go- because even I was talking with a friend, um, Twyla Nui in DMs the other day on Twitter about Mary Ruffles erasure, like she gave an erasure talk, which I need to watch. And Twyla was telling me how um, Ruffle like showed her friends, her poet friends, her erasure work, and they really didn't like it. And she talked about how it made her really happy because it meant that it was just for her then. <laughs> and I was like, that is such a healthy, wonderful, you know, because it's really easy to just want to write things that will be approved and that people will be happy with you for. I love that. I love Mary Rufel. And mm. that's amazing. I feel like that is a good statement that cancels out the bad one about books and babies. <laughs> My, they didn't like it. So it was just for me. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to read us another poem? Sure. Um, okay. I'm going to read another mandala poem. Um, and, you know, we're talking about like what you have permission to write and not write. So this is sort of a poem that is also for me about like figuring out what I had permission to say and finally maybe getting it into a poem. Um, This is called Mandala of the Soapy Water. A few photos, sharp cheekbones, deep set eyes, bequeathed to his son, my father, grandma remarried, erased him so thoroughly he turned into smoke rings, turned into a stock story she told, went out for cigarettes one day and drifted away. My father, fathered by a cloud, became a painter, someone who could turn anything beautiful. Martinez, our name, our mystery, mispronounced by me until college. Then the apologetic Martin in my mouth, the as tacked on quietly, as if to escape notice, was corrected. Over and over again, Martinez came back to me the only way New Yorkers knew how to say it. So his name at least returned. Later, I searched databases for him, no trace as if he never was in the first place. Where a story of him would go is the sentence, He was a dishwasher. That odd formulation, as if it were a vocation instead of a poorly paid, back-breaking job that he must have hoped to trade for something better. Instead of a story, a vague notion that he was Puerto Rican. Or mixed, a little Spanish and Irish too. No story of who his people were. The story is that he disappeared, but no story is told of where he went or why or what happened to him. He simply fades from family memory in the murky middle of the 1950s. Families gather around something, telling stories. What is there at the center? Ring of smoke. In the absence of story, image. Soapy water, the white moons of plates coming up for air, sinking again. Late night, hot restaurant, kitchen, summer in the city. His rumpled white apron, wet against the clank and spray of the sink, his sore back, his shining soapy arms circling ancestor. I want to imagine you another life. Thank you. That is such a beautiful poem. Um, Really incredible. And, you know, because there are two stanzas that are intercepts on the next page, 
I was a little worried it was done when I got to he simply fades from family memory in the murky middle of the 1950s and I was like oh no and then and you turn the page and there's more um it's just beautiful Chloe I think you have such a gift for um oral history and for I mean the I was with my partner we had gone out to um just have like a quick date the other day in the evening and I thought he was wanted to work so I had of course brought your book because I wanted to read poems <laughs> we were gonna have a beer at the pub right next to our house and um and I ended up reading him the mirror room out loud because it's just as soon as I read it I was like oh this poem wants wants to be spoken like it's just there's such a beautiful and it's um I mean, I think it's really easy to overlook this, but when a poem is easy to read out loud, like, you know, the work that has gone into shaping that language to be something where you don't trip over it. Um, and the way, I mean, I think the images, yeah, I would love to hear you talk about this. I could go on about like the smoke rings and the incredible lines. Grandma remarried, erased him so thoroughly, he turned into smoke rings. Um, my father fathered by a cloud, like how mythic. It's just beautiful. Um, and it's such like a honoring poem that also leaves space for unknowability and absence. And it's really difficult to write into absence like this. Thank you so much. That's really nice of you to say. Um, you know, I, it's as you highlighted these moments about the smoke rings, I just sort of remembered how I think this is another moment where that framework of the mandala and the idea of circularity and working through something difficult in a circular fashion maybe went back into this poem. I think I think some of those circles, I might have teased them out a little bit more in revision because I, I realized that that was something that was giving me a shape for thinking about about this absence, right? It is an absence at the at the center of a circle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. And, you know, as I said, this was a, a poem that you're right. It's really hard to write about absence. And so this is something I didn't write about for a long time. This sort of fact that I have this like real, real absence in my family history. This, you know, one of my grandparents who just, I don't really know anything about. There are like two photographs. Um, and then that that also is, that's my last name. And that's a big part of my identity that I carry around. And it's also a complicated part of my identity. On the one hand, I claim it. It is a large part of how I'm perceived in the world. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, I claim it tentatively because I also definitely, I'm somebody who can pass as white if I wanted to, if I had chosen to like get married and take another name, I could shuck off that piece of myself right in terms of the way yeah. people encounter me and I've never wanted to I've always wanted to make sure that was because as as I sort of say in this poem I think in my childhood the idea that there was this non-white part of my family was something that was always downplayed by the rest of my family which was white uh, my mother's side is Russian Jewish uh, and so I grew up in a place where everybody pronounced my name Martinez I didn't learn anything about wow. that side of my heritage. I had no connection to any family members on that side. It was very much like not only that figure of that grandfather, but that whole part of my family background and history and ancestry was like this very loud absence for me that I didn't know what to do with as a child. And in college, when people start, you know, when I went out in the world and realized that people were 
perceiving me as as Latina in a different way from in my in my hometown. Um, I sort of felt that I had to like decide if I wanted to either participate in that and claim it or or constantly tell people no, no, I'm you know, I don't really have the cultural background and I have sort of tried to fall in a middle place where I I do I feel that I move through the world largely perceived as a person of color. I claim that and I I've actually done my best to sort of even since writing this poem to research it a little bit and try and gain back some connection to that part of my background. But also it is complicated. I don't speak Spanish. I don't lay the kind of cultural claim to it that others do. So I also am always like moving tenuously through those spaces. Um, you know, as an academic, I have seen more and more how even with this like kind of slight connection to my background, it is often important for students to see mm-hmm. somebody with my last name at the head mm-hmm. of the classroom. Like it makes a difference. It, it matters. So it's there, but you know, as I say, it's something that I, I have a really complex relationship to, and I always feel that I need to claim only with, with care. So this poem was my attempt to sort of try and articulate that mm-hmm. and, and trace it historically a little bit. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate your care and um, the work. I mean, the the work that this, this poem's beautiful. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> let's all do gorgeous <laughs> genealogy work. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when, when a woman is married, a lot of times they take, it, you know, if you're married to a man, a lot of times you'll take your partner's name in the United States. Um, and you see more hyphenations now. And, but I am often assumed to be Dutch when I'm not. And it's really interesting. Um, and like my, my maiden name was Heth Cox and no one could ever spell it and or say it. So it was, it was, you know, it's like English Scottish. So it was much easier to go to Vanderhart, which is longer and suddenly it just didn't, but it's so interesting in terms of identity. And um, I mean, I'm, lately I'm just always thinking about that Jericho Brown quote, which I saw on Twitter, which is some identities you're born with and some you claim. Um, and that's true, even with identities you're born with. I don't know, that's it's continues to be a small obsession of mine. Um, but the way you work with genealogy. And I think it's just really, um, it just really roots and, and anchors your book in a powerful way. Thank you. I do love a research poem. I, I love having a little bit of research or some kind of like some unexpected factual discovery can unlock a poem for me. Mm-hmm. I, I know that some people say like finding the right image or finding the right metaphor or something can be the the key. And I know that sometimes can be the case, but for me, sometimes I feel like it can be a piece of research because I think mm-hmm. like real life is, is weirder than anything we can make up. Um, and I often discover a real thing that is so weird that that's the thing that makes me kind of have the new idea that turns into the poem. Yeah, it's, you know, I've also thought about how you have um, stanzas, you you have a lot of stanzas in this book, 
and you really like your couplets and your tercets, which is really interesting to me. And, um, you know, thinking about like the rooms of the poem and the many pieces of the poem and, you know, a faceted poem. And um, earlier when we were talking about the mandala, it made me think of that Mary Shebus poem that is the radial design, you know, like the, yeah. And um, I just saw a poem, you know, again, by Rachel Eidelman in Nocturne that does similar radiating. And it's just, when you have a poem on the page, you have to turn the book or turn the page. Or I like was looking at it on my phone the other day. So like turning my phone and trying to get, get it to rotate on me so I can read the lines. Um, and you have to reorient yourself. I mean, I think that you are doing that reorienting work without it being a concrete poem per se, but that, that there's like this turning and this turning um, and the circle, which is really beautifully done throughout your book I think um and I think it's like aspirational Mm -hmm. oh sorry can I just interject that I love that Mary Shabist poem and that book so much I teach I teach that book as often as I can and you know there's also um oh my goodness who is it there's another radial poem that I think she's riffing on I think it's George Herbert George Herbert has a has a poem that's in that same it's not that it's, okay, I just remembered what it is. George Herbert has a poem which Helen Bendler did a radial arrangement of while she was doing a reading of it. Oh, and I cool. came across it and then I was like, huh, this is just like the Shibist. So I have no idea if Shibist was inspired by that. That's Her poem so cool. is incredible, but sometimes I teach the two together to think about hmm. you know, the ways that, yeah, that a circular reading of the poem is a whole different experience, having to turn the book around, having yeah. to to rearrange ourselves in relation to the page is so valuable. I've actually been hmm. trying to do some kind of like visual poems like that in my new project. And I oh, don't cool. think I have a, a grasp on how to do them yet. They're very, uh, they're a little scary to me because I yeah. feel like I can get swept up in the fun of playing around with that space on the page. And I, I don't know all yet how to balance it with language. Hmm. Um, I think she does it so, so well. Anyway, sorry. No, that, no, was no. Total, that was a total, total side tangent. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. It's exactly, that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, no, that's incredible to think. Uh, it's making me think I've never assigned that in a, um, you know, sometimes I'll do concrete poetry, but I've never assigned a radial poem to my students. Now I'm like, that would be such a wonderful, just because in terms of thinking about the field of the page and shaking up, because there's, is there's something about form that is also about knowing and knowledge and just to, to change and to, like I said, reorient yourself, um, like I was reading this book on Iris Murdoch the other day and the scholar is a woman scholar. And she was saying, she was kind of calling out methodology as this like faux scientific approach to the humanities and how that she likened her methodology to a daisy stitch and how it's like, there are these radiating points, but they all come back to a center. And I was like, that's the most amazing thing I've read in a really long time. I was like, why don't we get to describe our methodologies as embroidery? Because that would be way more interesting and fun. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah. 
Right. And why don't we describe our methodologies as embroidery? Because we're often afraid of looking mm-hmm. like feminine or crafty or mm-hmm. uh, unserious, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of move back and forth between academe in a totally non-poetic uh, field and in the poetry world. And mm-hmm. I feel more and more how how rigid the academic side of things is and, and how much is lost with that rigidity, right? How much of ourselves we're not allowed to put into our academic work, mm-hmm. um, how hierarchical and, and judgmental that world can be. And, yeah. and that like, not only is it often not fun to have to fit yourself into that box to do that work, but also that I just think, I think the disciplines suffer. I think that like the academic work Mm-hmm. I think academic writing, you know, is often boring when it doesn't need to be. Uh, I think that academic forms of writing, you know, scholar, the scholarly essay is so slow to evolve and yeah. it doesn't need to be. That work is, is important and mm-hmm. should be done, but also should be read by wider audiences. And it really is hard to make that happen. True. Whereas poetry, you know, we get all this flexibility and you can write a craft essay and you can talk about the daisy stitch and and that is like the most perfect metaphor for what Murdoch is trying to talk about right and she's she's able to do that um when you when you have the literary uh once you've made your name on the literary side of things right you suddenly yeah. get that freedom to approach serious theorizing also in a literary kind of mode which is so wonderful yes yes and um, just absolutely yes to that. I think about once I walked into, it was the first day of a summer class I was teaching. It was creative writing and I didn't take attendance because I was waiting for all the students to get there. So I hadn't introduced myself and we were all sitting there quietly. And then some of the students started talking about why they were taking the class. And one of them was like, this is just a, this is just a fun class. It's just one you take for fun. It's like not serious. It's not. And they started going on and I was like, wow. And then I, you know, I was, I realized they didn't realize who I was and they just thought I was a student. And, and so when it was time to start, I was like, you're right. This is a class you take for fun. And they, I mean, I think one of them started choking because they were <laughs> so- that is so fantastic. It was amazing, but like the excuse to do something for pleasure, um, is something that I think poetry and creative writing, uh, we hold on to that. Even when we're doing really serious documentary work, genealogy work, um, historical work, there's always an element. And a lot of times it does come down to form. That's very pleasurable. Um, which I just, it's so easy to lose sight of that in, in academia proper. <laughs> yes. I agree. Now I just want to go like read all the books in that, all the poems in that Shabist book. Now you've reminded me. Incarnadine, I need to, I need to reread that. I usually teach it in my first year seminar and I've been teaching a different first year seminar this semester on autobiography, not poetry. So I haven't gotten to spend time with it um, this fall get back to it in the spring but it's so good that radial poem with the absence at the center which is god basically just incredible mm-hmm. um and she has so many really interesting visual poems in there right she has poems that are like erasures and 
poems that are doing all kinds of stuff with that open space of the page and then also very more traditional poems and couplets and stanzas. Um, mm. It's just a really, I love how inventive that collection is. It's one of those books that I go back to when I feel like limited in my, in my ideas about possibility, right? It's one of those books that I turn to when I wanna be reminded, yes, you can do anything you want in your poem. Right here, all the variety of things you could do. Yeah. When you said that there was a George Herbert poem in a radial, I was like, how do I not remember this? That's so cool. And now it's I need to I go. made it up. <laughs> it's, it's Vendler. It's not Herbert. It is a Herbert poem, but Vendler's the one who made it a radial. That's really but, cool. Yeah. That's but Herbert cool. does also have all those cool poems mm-hmm. in shapes, you know, that are, yes. that are also doing that sort of thing. Yes. I love, I think concrete poetry is a really fun and different way to think. And um, I, I remember having a class and it was my peers and they, some people were doing concrete poetry. And um, one of the poets brought in a poem that he said was in the shape of a candle and it did not look like a candle. Um, <laughs> there's also, there's also a, um, it's like an automatic generator for concrete poems I don't know if you know about it I'll have to look up the name but my children love to use it because if they write a poem then you can draw with your mouse and so and it will put your words down so you can draw like a tree and rain and ground you know like and it your words will be coming down it's very fun um I use that for some of my classes sometimes too but my my children really like to play around with it so I would love to to know yeah. about that. I've been writing some of these kinds of poems and then I'm very intimidated by trying to put them into a Word doc or figure out how to, I'm like, ah, oh, I guess I have to like learn Photoshop or something. I don't know. I have one that has a, an, like an empty space in the middle, um, which, you know, Diana Coy Wen has this great, great book um, where she has these empty spaces ghost cut of, out of her, yeah. of her brother. Yeah. The ghost of, um, I wrote a poem that also has an empty space in it. And then I was like, I don't know how to make this empty space happen in a document. Mm -hmm. And I've done a bunch of versions of it and they're all kind of unsatisfactory. And then I also, I I think the poem is sort of where it needs to be, but there's another part of me that feels that maybe I'm distracted by this excitement about making the shape in the poem, right? (laughs) Like it's hard, it's hard for me to, to keep those two things together, the, the visual aspect. And then also, is the language as strong as it needs to be? Is everything mm-hmm. exactly working as it should just on the level of language? How much work is the visual doing and how much am I just leaning on the visual? I never want it to be a lazy element of the poem. Yeah, there's such an ease when you know, or I, I find myself like couplets is really my preferred form. <laughs> so like when you know, too like the way a form works you can lean into it and um it's it's so comforting and I I try to challenge myself on that because I do like to make things neat um and something shouldn't be neat but I I mean that's why I think the concrete poetry and the shapes can really push you just out of your comfort and you you have to think about your lines differently like why are they the length they are if it's you know like what is the the ruling factor or, um, yeah, 
Now I want to do more concrete poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have that same, I have the same tendency to neaten this book, as you say, it is, it's mm. full of, uh, you know, even length couplets or uh, three or four stanza lines. I, I do love a stanza and I kind of love mm. an even shaped stanza. And I also am suspicious of that wish to make things even. And I'm always trying to push myself to mess it up a little bit. Um, I was last night, I have been working on a, a project with a friend collaboratively um, and we call them our sapphics. And um, I sent her a photograph of your poem, The Thief from Four Past Lives, as I recall them. Like we send things to each other all the time. And I sent her a copy of this and I was like, look, a sapphic by Chloe Martinez <laughs> because it's so beautiful. And again, um, coming back to embroidery, would you like to read this poem since I'm sure. yapping about it? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. Um, this poem, uh, there are even more of these, but the longer version of this poem is actually in my chapbook corner shrine, but I have a, this is a slightly shortened version in this book. And, you know, I wrote these as part of the grind. Have you ever done the grind? No. Ah, uh, you know, uh, the grind is the poem a day, Ross, Ross White runs it, right? So it's a poem a day practice where you sign on at the beginning of the month and you have to produce, come hell or high water, a poem every day for the whole month, wow. which is excruciatingly difficult for me, but I've done it a couple of times. I haven't done it in several years because every time I've thought about it, I've said, there's no way you'll make it through. And <laughs> Uh, people who do the grinds try to take very seriously the commitment, right? You can't drop out. So this was one grind. I started doing these, these poems that were like conversations between inanimate objects. And yeah, I'm really interested in thinking of them as sapphics. I love that. And then when I was putting them into this book, I started also thinking about them as past lives. Maybe they're, you know, there's certainly ways of speaking of, of letting my own voice sit in other spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly also, as we were just talking about like messing things up, these were definitely poems I was writing in a real effort to say, be a little messy, be a little mm -hmm. irrational. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to, I often tend to tell stories in my poems and I really wanted to write a bunch of poems in which I did not tell complete stories or at least gave less context or <laughs> took some of those took off some of those reins. Um, here's the thief from Four Past Lives as I recall them. You were a tapestry woven by medieval geniuses. Fortified towns and castles were contained merely in the background of you and all your flowers were real, each identifiable by its Latin name. Had Latin names even been invented in your time? Anyway, I was a thief who spent hours unraveling only your gold and silver threads. Please understand, I didn't want to do it, but you sparkled so. And in those days, there was a war on and I was always hungry. Thank you. Um, I love, I mean, I think it fits these poems, the four past lives as I recall them and their sequence, and they do really different work each. And then in your last one, the mirror, of course, there's this flipping through of multiples. So um, very mirror-like in some ways. Um, 
and they continue the project of 10,000 selves, which is alternative ways of knowing and kind of like radical, radical re-knowing or, um, and I think that's what I find really attractive about the mandala and the art, the way you engage ekphrasis too, right? Which is another um, big thread. Here I go with um, more embroidery, but like that you literally have the um, embroidery here and the unweaving and this um, Penelope move here, right? In some ways, even though it's a thief, which I love. Um, yeah, I think it has, does this have any, because your research area, um, and, you know, we've been talking about mandalas, but in South Asian religion, um, did you want to talk a little about how your research interests intersect with your poetry? Sure. And I also want to say, though, first, that I just mm -hmm. realized reading this, that this is another example of the same thing I, I said in the last poem I read, like, real stuff being so weird that it unlocks the poem for me. This poem came out of me reading somewhere that like medieval European tapestries were, um, I wanna say during World War One, maybe were, or World War II or both, uh, were hidden away because people were mm. literally unraveling the precious metal threads to melt down. And I thought that was so weird and wild and like how much work would that be? And how desperate would you need to be to do that, um, that I had to write a little poem just to inhabit it. So again, that's sort of a research piece. It's not about my area of research expertise, mm -hmm. but the, I guess, the realization that often my poems are sparked by these weird, unexpected research moments or stuff that I come across that is real, but so strange that I think it belongs in poems. Yes. Yeah, um, I guess, to talk about my research, you know, I have a, I study South Asian religions. I've, that's what my PhD is in. And I teach courses like intro to Hinduism, Sikhism, religions of India. Um, that's often what's happening in my academic life. Although I also more and more am, am kind of sneaking poetry into my classes. I will have, even in a class on, uh, on Hinduism, my I might have students write poems in the middle of the class in order to think about a particular context or moment. And I do also teach a poetry and religion class that's like a blend of everything, it's like my magical hybrid happy place. Hmm. Um, but I mean, a lot of the books in this poem, uh, a lot of the poems in this book, <laughs> a lot of the poems in this book um, are set in India and come out of my time in India. So one of the big ways that my research and my poetry intersect is that because of my research I've gotten to spend a lot of time in India which is a place I love and a place I'm not from and a place that I've spent I like several years over the course of more years than that uh, so it's like for me has been a place that's inspired a good amount of writing and has been also productive for me in thinking about the ways in which we can claim and not claim ownership or membership or knowledge. You know, I, my background is not South Asian. Hmm. It's uh, an area of study that I sort of fell in love with as an undergrad, went to India and study abroad, um, started learning Sanskrit and Hindi and got really interested in medieval Indian religious poetry. 
Mm-hmm. So that was my sort of poetry was my way into studying South Asia. Um, but then South Asia became the way that I got to, to go live in this, this different place and have a whole new set of experiences there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the poems that I've written about India are really about trying to negotiate that middle space of being in a place, having a long, long history and attachment to that place and also not being of it. Also always, of course, moving through India as an American, you're moving through with a great deal of privilege. Um, so I can't ever shuck that off or, or, or claim to be free of it, no matter how many years I study Hindi, right? Like that's part of my experience and part of what I'm trying to sort of capture and access when I'm writing about India. So it's, uh, for me, that's been fruitful because it's a space of complexity. And that's something I always want to get at in my poems is um, that complexity of my position in relation to the places and the people and the histories around me. So it shows up in a lot of these poems. And I also, an early version of this book was more kind of India focused. And then as the book kept growing, And as I wasn't in India, because I'd had kids and it was hard to travel and I haven't been back in a bunch of years, the poems were not about India. So first the India poems like moved to one section of the book and then I hated that arrangement. It was like section two, we go to India Mm -hmm. and I got rid of that. And now they're sort of sprinkled throughout. And I also made a chapbook, which was just a place for those poems to stand on their own. But it's still, I think, that thread of India, my experience in India, and the questions that India always raises for me about um, how we move through the world, how we relate to each other, what our obligations are Mm. to those places and people around us. um, That is still a central thread of the book for me. Yeah. I have heard, I heard Benjamin Garcia talk about trying to separate all the different threads in his book, Thrown in the Throat. Um, and just being really unhappy when he kind of sectioned off the book and then realizing that, no, they all needed to be intertwined. They all needed to run together. And I think it's really interesting to think about in terms of, you know, manuscript organization. And, um, you know, I, I think a really important concept that Ross Gay has talked about, and I just keep, you know, David Naiman, was it David Naiman or is it Rachel? Sucker, who they talk about entanglement together. Um, but the concept of entanglement just yeah. does, and it, you know, it's, it's a, like you said, what we owe each other, you know, it's in, involved in ideas of justice and community. And um, I think that's really beautiful when it comes out of, um, we bring it to ideas of travel too. It's not just like, local communities, right? But like the global communities and how we move in a larger world. Um, Did you wanna talk a little bit about your beautiful cover image, which I know was um, a minor adventure to to get, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this cover image was a minor adventure to get. When I was thinking about the cover for this book, I still did want it to be a cover that came out of Indian art. Um, and I, I found this picture, which is a, it's a genre of paintings that are just called often composite paintings. So Indian miniature paintings, which are of 
an animal that's made out of different people. So that's what you see if you're looking at this image. It's a horse that's made out of these different women who are like forming the shape of the horse. And then it also has this very imposing looking woman who's riding the horse and carrying this, a spear. And I loved how weird that image was. And it's, it's perfect for this book, which is all about, of course, multiplicity and multiple selves and also gender and femininity. I love that, um, you know, the different women in this image, I'm not sure, you know, what they're, they're meant to represent. There is this one woman who's powerful, these other women who are playing these roles of support. Um, maybe they're being sexualized, maybe they're not. I did feel very strongly that I wanted to make sure I wasn't using a religious image on my cover because I mm -hmm. feel uh, strongly that I shouldn't, you know, I'm not Hindu, though I teach about Hinduism, for example, among other religions. I don't think it's my place to use uh, anybody else's gods or goddesses on my book cover. Mm -hmm. So I also love this image because it's not, you know, I don't, I have not found anybody saying that there's anything explicitly religious about this image, though it's possible you could read the, the woman riding the horse as a kind of a goddess figure, but I would say it's kind of a neutral image. And everything I've read about the history of this style of painting is that it's just like a weird kind of subgenre of, of decorative, decorative art that doesn't necessarily, I think when we look at Indian art, we often expect it to have all these complex symbolic and religious meanings. And this one doesn't really give you those clues. It doesn't have, there are very clear markers of this is a particular God or this is a particular goddess or context. Um, it's a little bit neutral, which I like. It's a little bit like, I'm not gonna necessarily tell you how to read this image. It's open to many interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, so for all those reasons, I found this image, which is in the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco and said, this is the perfect one. And hopefully, you know, museums, tend to let you use images without too much uh, too much of a charge for permission. So yeah, there was a little bit of a saga where I they had a form online and I emailed them and got no response. And we had a long little communications mishap because of course it's a pandemic and nobody was there mm. in the museum. I couldn't call anybody and it oh. went to a form and it went to an inbox and I tried calling different numbers and I couldn't get a human. Everybody was working from home. Oh, wow. And it turned out that it had gone, that the permissions request, which I think it had to, it had to put my editor's email address in there as the official permissions requester, it had gone into a spam folder and it just took us a while to find it. We finally did, but I, I put a call on Twitter. Does anyone know anybody <laughs> at the Asian Art Museum? I like reached out to scholars I knew and said, do you know anyone there? And I actually mm -hmm. finally untangled it by having my old undergrad advisor write to a person who was a former curator at the museum wow. who wrote to the current curator <laughs> who dug up the email and this whole wow. thing in this elaborate circle between a bunch of kind strangers <laughs> who helped me out. Aha, a circle. <laughs> yes, it was a circle yet again, but I finally got the permissions and I'm very wow. happy to have had them. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, it's always, I think, sometimes it's easy to not see the work that goes into a cover it goes into design um and the 
other hands help make the book, you know? And so I think it's so good to hear about this and also just to hear the care and considerateness you put into choosing an image and um, the sense of ethics you bring to it, which I think is absolutely essential to, to us in creative work. Um, I, you know, sometimes I feel like the pressure can be put on ethics when there's anything medical related or when it's science related, but it should be there just as much in our, in the humanities practices. Like it just, just be a natural part. Um, and it's not <laughs> as I have discovered. Um, but thank you for sharing that. It's a beautiful image. I hope listeners look up your book if they don't have it yet and um, order a copy, which they can order a signed copy from you, right, Chloe? Is that possible? They can. They can find a link on my website to do that. Absolutely. Right. Or you can get it anywhere you can, anywhere you order your books. Wonderful. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well. So thank it will be you. easy. Um, would you like to close us with a poem? Sure. Awesome. Um, I was thinking I would read not yet official Girl Scout badges, which you published on Moist Poetry. And so I thought that would be fitting. That would be wonderful. Um, my daughter's a Girl Scout and I was never Girl Scout, but I get to tag along uh, on a lot of Girl Scout field trips or I did before, before the pandemic and have inspired many a poem. So this is one, and it's really, you know, it's a love poem to my daughter. Not yet official Girl Scout badges. Forgetting to eat breakfast while reading badge. Lazing in bed on Sunday morning badge. Catching lizards that got inside and releasing them badge. Supermarket dancing badge. Empathy for the dog you hear howling every morning badge. Boredom badge. Patience while your little sister has another fit badge, badge for intensity of focus. Steadfast refusal to eat food you don't like badge. Distractibility badge, also called noticing that flower badge. Badge for laughing so hard you fall on the floor. Rolling eyes and returning to book when parents give educational lectures badge. Living in your body badge, tripping and falling badge, insisting on your own pronunciation of Mesopotamia badge. Comic book world creation badge, actual world creation badge, bedroom door slam badge, desiring justice badge, badge of being nervous before the piano recital, badge of doing it anyway, sharing dad's obsession with the Pan-Asian mega buffet in Ontario badge, secretive looking happily in the mirror sometimes badge, sitting in mom's office after school because she missed extended day signups and instead of complaining, putting all her paper clips into one giant paperclip chain badge, badge of wonder, badge of rage, not caring much about badges badge, born just before a snowstorm badge, being or being beloved badge. Thank you so much, Chloe. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you. And this was just such a treat. Thank you so much, Anne. Oh, thank you. And I hope our listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, will hit the subscribe button and also check out links in the show notes to purchase Chloe Martinez's 10,000 cells. And thank you for listening.